So uh, for, the last, for the last several weeks, we've been in this, in this sermon series going through different questions that God asks in the Old Testament, right? And he's, God has asked questions like, you know, where are you? What is your name? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And we've talked about the ways that God uses those questions to expose us and to draw us into deeper relationship with him. That those very ancient questions are questions that God is still asking us because he desires to connect with us, to be in relationship with us. And the question we're at that God asks this morning out of our passage is, is a little bit different. This morning God asked the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And in asking that question, God is inviting us to participate in something. To participate in his work out in the world. And then there's something in us as, as humans that, that resonates with that, right? Because we all want to be a part of something significant. Whether, whether we believe in God or not, everybody wants to be a part of something significant. And part of that is because we want to believe that we are significant, that the world that we live in is significant, that our relationships, our day-to-day lives, we want to believe that they matter. And so in this question, we hear God's invitation into significance. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? But the setup for this question, and I'll tell you, we're gonna spend most of the sermon setting up this question, okay? The setup for this question is not like you might think. Because usually, when we're uh, getting set up for this question of, sig- of significance, right? Because it's connected to us feeling significant, what we do is we get out the bike pump, we go through the garage, find the bike pump of our own significance, and we start to pump, right? Like if I'm gonna do something significant, I gotta pump myself up and be ready to be doing something significant. That is not the approach that God takes in this passage. He takes a very different approach. So I'm gonna ask Ashley to come up. Ashley's gonna be reading for us. This is Isaiah 6, verses one through, one through eight. Yeah, that's what I told you. Uh, and I want you to listen kind of for this different approach that God takes to inviting us into something significant this morning. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask that, you would, uh, that you'd be speaking to us through this text this morning. Lord, that you would give us a deeper appreciation for your holiness, Lord, and for what that means for our uh, day-to-day lives. Jesus, we're so thankful that you uh, spoke to Isaiah and that you desire to and delight to speak to us today. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like we talked about, this is not uh, getting out the bike pump and pumping up our, our egos, right? This is something totally different that actually what God does to prepare Isaiah for this ministry he's about to step out into is he, he levels him with a display of his holiness. Because Isaiah is about to be called, as a, this is his calling as a prophet of God. So we talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about Elijah, right? Elijah is a prophet, was a prophet. Uh, we talked about how the kingdom of Israel, God's people, had been one kingdom, and then the kingdom was divided. And there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And we talked about how Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Isaiah here is a prophet to the southern kingdom. So just a little bit of background. It's like where we are in scripture. So Isaiah is being prepared by God to be a prophet, to speak on God's behalf to his people. That when Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, he is saying, these are the words of God for you. It's a high and and holy calling. And for Isaiah to step into that, what God does is he, he prepares him for that by giving him a glimpse of his holiness, of God's holiness. So we're gonna look at that. That's, our, that's gonna be our first point, God's holiness, if you're a note taker. Second point is just gonna be God's question. So God's holiness, God's question. Very simple. And we talk about then what that means for us and the way that we go about living our lives. Okay, so first, God's holiness, right? In this passage, holiness is the focal point of this entire narrative. The seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. And everything that, that, everything that we just read kind of points to that line of their song. You're probably wondering, what the heck is a seraphim? Great question. Uh, it's hard to say, okay? But, <laughs> but the picture is kind of of some kind of uh, angelic being, like a, a spiritual being. And, and literally, what it means is a fiery one. So there's this picture of some kind of angel, right? And the angel is covering his eyes with his wings, one set of wings, covering his feet with the other set of wings, and then flying with the other set of wings. But when you picture that, like, in, uh, in the sense of a flame or being on fire, you kind of get this picture of like a flame, these flames around God. So if that helps you at all. So uh, these flames, these flying angelic beings are around God and they're shouting holy, holy, holy. And guys, holy is the, o- holy is the only adjective that has ever ap- applied to God three times. A fun fact, fun Bible fact for you, okay? And that, that's really significant because in Hebrew, right, there was no such thing, there was no way to underline the text, right, or like put it in italics. Didn't exist in their word processors at that point. Uh, they didn't have word processors, guys, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so the way that they would bold text is they would repeat it, right? Because their writing, it didn't have any spaces, it didn't have any vowels, it didn't have any uh, punctuation marks. So the way to capture a reader's attention was to repeat a word. Uh, and f- to have a word repeated three times, right? It, it, I don't think it happens anywhere else in scripture. 
but certainly not in connection to God's attributes. It's like, go with me now to like, remember MS Word back when Clippy was a thing, like early versions of MS Word, okay? When you could insert word art into your documents, or you know what I'm talking about? Like the words would be arched and you could put them in different colors and gradients of colors. And we all know that word art was great for the top of a page, right? For like the title of your report on animals or whatever. But imagine if the word art was put into the middle of the document, right? That's what, that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's getting your attention, the big, getting our attention in the biggest way possible. Holy, holy, holy. R.C. Sproul says this about the holiness of God. There's no other attribute. It's not, the angels don't cry mercy, mercy, mercy. They don't cry love, love, love. They don't cry judgment, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. They cry holy, holy, holy. It's important. What does it mean, though? Holiness is God, God being set apart. It's what makes God, God. It's the fact that he is the creator and we are the creation. He's superlative in all things, but not like senior superlatives, right? Not like best smile, God. Holiness, God. That's not what we're talking about here because your senior superlatives, which I'm sure some of you received, right? Senior superlatives are an exercise in a comparison by matter of degree. So you look around you and you think, well, who amongst all of us has the best smile, right? Who amongst all of us is likely to be the most successful, whatever that means, okay? It's comparison by matter of degree. But when we say that God is superlative, he's not superlative by matter of degree as if he's just like a little bit better than us in certain things. No, God is holy in that in his being, he is entirely different other than us. In his essence, he's distinct from us. And this passage uses, this, this, in this vision that Isaiah received, God uses these visuals to help him understand that. So it says that God is high and lifted up. There's this spatial metaphor that's used to communicate the greatness and the otherness of God. That the hem of his robe filled the temple, just the edge of his garment filled up the temple. Again, this bigness is an idea of greatness is what it is meant to connect us to. It speaks to God in his perfection and his wholeness and his completeness and his greatness and his otherness. And a lot of times we think about God's holiness or his perfection as if it's kind of static. Like when uh, my kids go to bed and we clean up the living room and everything gets back in its place, we're like, oh, this looks perfect. And then life happens and it gets all messed up and like, well, it's not perfect anymore. That's not the biblical picture of perfection, is a static thing. The picture of God's perfection, of his holiness, it's dynamic. It's expressed in everything that God does. Every work of God in the world is an, exp- is an expression of his holiness. When we see God's love, his grace, his mercy, his judgment, his righteousness expressed in the world, that we recognize them, but we see that they aren't expressed in the way that we would express them. They're expressed as God expresses them, which is different than us. It's holy. In all of his works, he's holy. And this holiness, what it draws out of us, what it evokes from us, is worship. We're made, we were made to delight in the holiness of God. 
I know I used an Olympics metaphor last week, but it's only two weeks, okay? So you gotta give me one more. Think about watching the Olympics this last week. I grew up as a swimmer, so I love to watch the swimming. And Caleb Dressel was like this year's big Olympian, big Olympic swimmer, right? And I don't know if, did anybody else watch the swimming or is this gonna be totally lost on everybody? Okay, a few, a few committed Olympic watchers. Great, so when, when Caleb Dressel dives into the water, Rowdy Gaines, I think that's his name, the, the swimming commentator on NBC loses his ever-loving mind. He just flips out, he's like, do you see that? It's gorgeous, it's amazing, it's beautiful, he's so much, and the same with the flip turn. He's like, look at the flip turn in the water, through the underwater camera and the butterfly kick and he's analyzing it and he, as someone who knows swimming, he's saying, this is so otherworldly than anything I could ever do. It's beautiful, it's amazing. And it, it evokes this kind of praise from him, right? The same thing happens with the diving, but I don't know anything about diving. So I'm like, cool, there was no splash. <laughs> but again, this is just a matter of degree, right? They're like, a little bit of a better swimmer, that, well, no, they're a lot better than we would be at swimming, but it's still a matter of degree that what we're talking about with God, though, is more than a matter of degree, right? It's in his essence, and so what it's designed to do, for us to be in a relationship with God's holiness is for us to call out in worship in response to it. And that the way that God, guys, the way that God created us to live was in light of his holiness. That what we would do is that we would look at God and that we would worship him in his holiness. And that the light of his holiness would be the light that illuminates our world. And that we would see who we are and how to live in the light of his holiness. And that how you and I were created to, to work and live in the world is to be people who bring that holiness out into everything that we do. That God gave us this raw kind of uh, unformed earth, and he said, go out and work in it. Take dominion of it. Be creative. And in, in how you work and how you live, uh, express my holiness in what you're doing. But all of our life is to be in view of the holiness of God. And then in doing that, we participate in the holy. We get to be involved in something significant. But Isaiah's response in here looks different, doesn't it? That what Isaiah actually says when he confronts the holiness of God is, woe is me. In the first few chapters of Isaiah, in the chapter right before this, Isaiah has pronounced six woes on the people of God. He's told them, hey, these are all the reasons that God's judgment is coming upon you because you've hardened your heart against God. And so he says, woe to you for, and he lists six different things. The seventh woe in Isaiah is a woe that Isaiah pronounces upon himself when he encounters the holiness of God. Woe is me, for I am undone. What's going on here? What, what scripture teaches us is that while we were created to live in the light of God's holiness, that that's something that is people that we uh, have turned our backs on. And more than turned our backs on, it's something that we have set ourselves against. Rather than enjoying and worshiping God's holiness, that what we have decided to do is to create holiness to make ourselves holy. That we wanted, what we wanna declare and worship is not the beautiness and the beautiness the beauty and the otherness of God, right? But is ourselves. There's this, uh, 
Roman emperor. You guys know I love historical facts, so here's the tidbit for you, okay? This Roman emperor, his name was Diocletian, and he reigned in like the two, three hundred, somewhere around that time. Uh, and Diocletian was bent on making himself and declaring himself to be holy. See, before that point, the Roman emperors had always kind of prided themselves on being like the first citizen. It was very George Washington of them, right? And of course, that wasn't actually how it worked out, but that was important to them in their image. But what Diocletian said is, no, we're gonna revolutionize the image of the emperor and the empire, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna communicate to all the people in the empire that I am different than them. So he said, I'm gonna wear purple all the time, purple robes, but no one else in the empire can wear it, only the emperor. And while previous emperors prided themselves on being kind of unadorned, he covered himself, fr himself from head to foot in, like, in gold and jewelry. He wore a golden crown and his sandals had jewels on them. And when people came into his presence, they were required to fall on their faces whenever he came in a room. And when he was out in public, they would shield him from people's view with these curtains, right? All of it was to communicate the otherness of this man. But we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's, that's so silly, right? He's just a person. And yet, in our own lives, isn't that so often how we structure the way that we think and what we do and what we talk about and how we live? That what I am so desperate to declare, what we are so often so desperate to declare is my otherness from the people around me that I so desperately want to experience holiness that the way that I'm going to set about doing it because I've rejected God's holiness, right, is now I have to make myself holy and set apart from you. And we could talk about all kinds of ways we do that. Just think about the judgment that we have for other people. The ways that we are constantly comparing ourselves and setting ourselves above or against them. So often that's an expression of our own desire to be holy. And think about it in all the ways that we try to curate our own images. That we so desire to be caught up in holiness, but apart from God, the only way we can do it is by structuring our lives to try to make ourselves seem holy. But it's just as empty as what Diocletian was doing. Have you ever been at a party where you walk in and there are all these impressive, beautiful people? It's sometimes how I feel like, sometimes what I feel like when I walk into church here. And uh, do you guys ever feel like that? Okay, this is my own insecurities coming out. Okay, but let's imagine it's not church. Let's imagine it's a party, okay, and everyone's telling stories. And as you're talking, you're hearing about how awesome someone else is. The first thing that starts coming out of you is how awesome you are, and you're trying to, like, pull it back in, but you just can't. Does that ever happen to anybody else? Okay, it's just me, I guess. <laughs> well, sometimes that happens to me. And I think, oh, this is so ugly that I want to be able to be here and be totally confident in who I am and who the Lord has said that I am but instead all I can do is tell stories that try to make myself feel better about how I am. But what that is is an expression, right, of my desire to make myself holy. And what happens when that kind of faux holiness comes into contact with God is, is Isaiah recognizes it for the fraud that it is. And so he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm literally disintegrating. It's, it's like an Avengers, you know, when people just start to like drift away. 
I kind of think about it like that. He's just falling apart. But he's been, he's been exposed and he's not there now in worship but in terror knowing that what his idolatry, his worship of himself deserves is punishment from God. But this is how God shows his holiness. And this is what makes our God uh, holy, holy, holy. It's what happens in verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That what, what God did for Isaiah is God said, I recognize that you are incapable of making yourself holy, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna leverage myself and I'm gonna cleanse you, and there's nothing that you can do for it. Isaiah didn't do anything. The coal touched his mouth. And he was made clean. Your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And what, what we see here as a picture, as a part of this vision of God's holiness in the way that he expresses his, his love toward his people, what we see here in a vision, we see more and most clearly in Jesus Christ, don't we? That when God said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That Jesus said, I will go. I will go for us. And you see the seraphim, right? They cover their eyes because of the glory and the holiness of God? Let me tell you what Isaiah says about, the, about how we would respond in seeing our Jesus, how the world would respond in seeing Jesus. It says, and who has believed what he heard from us? This is a little bit later in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And who has believed what, they, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. So this is God, this is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But as the angels fly around God and cover their faces because of the holiness of God, that when men saw the holiness of God expressed in Jesus, they hid their faces. Because what was being visited, vi visited upon him was the wrath that we deserved and it, it made us cover our eyes. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God's holiness is expressed most clearly in the person and the work of Christ. that he did everything that needed to be accomplished for us to be made right and made holy before God. And what other God is like that? Right, every other religion in the world, guys, has an idea of the holy. Even, even every system of living that is not religious or, or doesn't believe in God has a way of getting to holiness. 
There's a way of living, a way of speaking, a way of being that's supposed to set, set you apart and declare, no, I've got this figured out, I know what I'm doing. Only our God is a God who comes and says, no, I know that there is no way that your own efforts to make yourself holy are gonna get yourself back to me. Instead, I have come and I've done that work for you and I've done it myself. And then he says this in 1 Peter 2.9. Isaiah doesn't say it in 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2.9, okay. Uh, but this is what is true about us because of what Jesus has done for us. It says, but you are a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That your sin just hasn't been atoned for, you have been made Holy. We have been made holy, a people for his own possession, that, he may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's you now. So God asked the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's us. That's you and me. you've been made holy. You've been created to express that holy, the holiness of God now out into the world. Is that outrageous to you? It's outrageous to me. Me? Us? God says yes. That he, and not because of what we have done, but because he has made us holy. And that what we're called to express is not our own holiness, right? Sometimes Christians get this very wrong with very questionable to wrong results, bad results, right? That if, when we look out on the world and we say, okay, well, I'm supposed to be different, so I see this thing out in the world and I'm just gonna choose the opposite of that thing. I'm trying to think of a good example. I should have thought of this, an example of this before I, before I said this sentence. Uh, makes a lot of sense in my head. But, okay. We're just <laughs> we'll just say it is very easy to think of ways, right, that we look at things out in the world and we say, oh, well, they're saying this thing, so I should do the opposite thing. Okay. That is not a way of expressing God's holiness. That the way that we're called to express God's holiness is to ask God, how, do you, how are you asking me to live in light of who you are? Right, we talked about that, looking at the holiness of God and that light lighting up our world. Now I wanna walk in light of that and trusting that we are not responsible for making ourselves different, that God has made, has made us different because he's called us to himself and that as we walk out of that identity, it's gonna contrast with the world around us. That's an expression of God's holiness. So what does that look like then? Right, what does it look like to be a conduit of that holiness to the world? And what would it look like in your work? That as an expression of God's holiness in the world, that what you desire is to do good quality work. Like some of you are artists or craftsmen, craftspeople. And that when you work, that you doing good work, right, it speaks to, it points people to the goodness and the beauty and the holiness of God. It's also true about doing work that is good not doing work that's destructive to other people, right? 
doing work that is good as an expression of God's holiness. Doing work that honors the people around you, that interacts well with the people around you, right, in customer service or with other employees or with the people that you manage. That those are very everyday ways of expressing God's holiness out into his goodness, his love, his kindness, his otherness out into our world. It's true in the way that we do family. The way that we do family, whether or not we're married or have kids or any of that. How we do family is the family of God. That the way that we walk in that is an expression of God's holiness. That the way that you love your spouse or your children or your roommates or your friends, the people that God has put around you to be your people, that's an expression of his holiness. And the way that we do that, not just for the people around us, but the way that we invite other people into, into that. Like, like I think about fostering, for example. Right, like what an expression of the holiness of God to say my family is not just for me. My family is actually meant to be a gift to other people and so I wanna invite other people into that. Is that not a picture of the love of God? I think about the last week or two and how um, just... I would just be straight with you, how scary it has been for me to listen to the news. I kind of hoped that we were through the scariest of scaries, okay? But I, it's hard for me to hear about what might be happening with this Delta variant. And what is so easy for me to forget is that God is still on his throne. Because that's the picture that we get here that God in his holiness is on his throne, that he is a king, he is the king who is ruling and reigning in our world. And that while his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, that what he has told us is that he has a plan that he is working out and that it's good. When Isaiah was giving this prophecy, when Isaiah was given this vision in Isaiah 6, okay, uh, it's at this time when King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah was a really good king in Israel. And or I guess in Judah, because it was the southern kingdom. So King Uzziah was a really good king in Judah. And Judah was prospering financially, right, politically, militarily. But as goes the king, so goes the nation. That's kind of the history of God's people. And with the death of the king, the people were afraid. What's gonna happen? And really, when you read the story, this is kind of an inflection point. That the plane had kind of been humming along, and this they began their descent right here. And God has, called, God has called Isaiah to be a prophet in the time of descent. But in the midst of all of that fear and chaos, God is reminding Isaiah, I'm on the throne. I'm a holy. You may not understand what's going on, but I'm asking you to be a part of this mission, my mission out in the world. Whom shall I send and who will go for me? Guys, that's us. That whatever happens in the next few weeks, months, that you and I, we have been called to be an expression of God's holiness here in East Nashville. The ways that you interact with the people around you in, in, in the midst of a world, in a, as it gets potentially crazier, like that, that matters. 
the way that you, I've been thinking about kids going back to school, right? And how easy it is to be so critical of all the ways all of these things are working out and to let fear consume and drive us into conflict with the people around us. And what would it be like if when you're, when the, the, the people who are teaching your children felt honored and supported by you as a parent in the midst of a time that feels really hard for them? That the people who are serving you at a restaurant or on an airplane, right? in the midst of something that's really hard and may get harder, that what they experience from you is the holy love of God and the way that you interact with them. That, that's an expression of us walking in the holiness of God, even in a difficult, challenging time. And it's not just, it's not just how we live, but guys, it's also what we speak and that we would be people who speak the name of Jesus. That in the midst of a lot of fear, that we would not just walk around with the hope of Jesus being king in our hearts, but that we would actually say his name out loud. That's what Isaiah was called to as a prophet, was to speak. That the comfort and the strength that we draw from Jesus being on the throne wouldn't just be something that we keep to ourselves, but would be something that we speak out loud. There's an invitation to, to us in that here. the seraphim, right, they're, they're flying around and they're calling holy, 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 the earth is filled with his glory. But actually, in the Hebrew, there's no verb there. It's just, it's supplied, it's implied. The earth filled with his glory. And so commentators have talked about, well, well what is the tense of that verb? The earth is filled with his glory? The earth will be filled with his glory? I think both. The earth is filled with the glory of God, with the splendor of his holiness. That as we look out in creation, we see it. That as, we, that it, that as I look at you guys, I see it. God's holiness expressed in the life of his people and the change that he has wrought and is making in your lives. The earth is filled with his glory. But what we also look forward to is the earth being more filled with his glory, being, f being more and more filled with it, and that we look forward to the day when it will be totally filled with his glory. And in the meantime, what we do is get to we get to participate in making it more full. And the picture of that that we see in this passage is this picture of smoke. Right? The temple is filled with smoke because the smoke is, uh, throughout scripture, an indicator of God's presence. And the picture just kept coming back to for us is uh, that what we want to see, what we're being invited into, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Is that we would see Nashville, that we would see East Nashville uh, covered in the glory of God. Like Nashville after the 4th of July, right? When the air quality is unhealthy for sensitive groups, you know? When you wake up and there's the haze over everything, and you think, what happened here? People set up a lot of fireworks. It's filled with the smoke, right? That the ways that we are expressing God's holiness in the ways that we live and in the ways that we speak would fill and cover our city with the glory of God. Expression would be an expression of the holiness of God. That's what we're being invited into. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Let me pray for us.
Father, we, uh, we, we praise you for your holiness. Uh, Lord, our plan, just confess, Lord, our plan would not be to use broken people uh, to declare your holiness out in the world. But Lord, that's your plan because you are holy, holy, holy. So Lord, as we come to you in worship, uh, would you draw us deep, more deeply into an experience of your holiness, your otherness, Lord? And that in that, would you lead us to repentance, uh, to acknowledging and crying out before you that we are in need of you. Jesus, but that that would fill us not uh, with terror, Lord, but with the joy of getting to experience you for who you are, beautiful and glorious and majestic. And Lord, we ask that you would cover our city, even our part of the city, even here, East Nashville, Lord, uh, with a thick cloud of your, of your holiness and your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.